parable, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Paradigm shift, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. In other words, a new reality. The parables of Jesus were not just simple stories or teaching illustrations to make a moral or spiritual point. They were meant to disrupt and to provoke the imagination, to invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. His parables upend our notions about life and challenge us to view his kingdom accurately, to not just simply think differently, but to live out a new reality. They are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church. If we've never met before, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors and staff. So, so good to have you guys out. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online as well. Uh, and I think they just left the room, but it's so excited to see uh, people just taking that next step of faith and choosing in and uh, getting baptized. So just a really cool thing that we get to celebrate at the church, and I just want to challenge you. Do not take that for granted. It is so cool when you just get to see that God is still active and moving and changing lives, and, and we get to be part of that. So... Uh, so right now, uh, if this is your first week here, we find ourselves in the middle of a series that we are calling Paradigm Shift, in which we are walking through some of the par- famous parables of Jesus. As you guys saw in the opening video, uh, a paradigm can be defined as follows, uh, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. And so it's the idea that perhaps for most of your life, you have been thinking one way about a certain thing, and then for whatever reason, uh, you come to the realization that your way of thinking, that it was off, that it missed the mark. It's the idea that you need to throw out all of your previous assumptions and beliefs about whatever that thing was, and now you need to consider a brand new way of approaching or thinking about that particular thing. And the reason that we decided to call this series Paradigm Shift is because we believe that is precisely what Jesus' parables were designed to do. As we said last week, uh, for many of us, when we think about the parables, we have a tendency to think about them as cute little stories for kids or simple teaching illustrations designed to help make a point. But the reality is encased within Jesus' parables were often incredibly disruptive ideas that were meant to completely upend the current mode of operation and the current way of thinking about something. They were meant not just to enlighten people, but to challenge people and to awaken them to a new reality and a new kingdom that God was ushering in. So if you guys have a Bible with you, I want you guys to join me in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, if you're a guest with us, if you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back uh, in front of you, and we're gonna be on page uh, 801. And if you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to actually take that Bible home with you. You can just consider that Bible a gift from us. So this at the beginning, we're in the middle of a series. We are actually week two of our series in the parables. And so today we are going to look at a parable that is known as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Parable of the Workers in the Vineyard. And I was thinking through how to like start this and how to kind of launch ourselves in. And the more I read the parable, I decided I think the best way to dive in is to just dive right into it, right? Like just to go right into it. And so that's what we're going to do. So if you guys are ready, we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start with verse 1 and let's dive into the parable together. So here's how it starts. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. So our story starts out with the landowner who goes out early in the morning. We're going to say it's around 6 a.m., and we are told that he goes out to a place in town where there are day laborers looking for work. Now, if you're not familiar with this concept of a day laborer, these would have been workers who did not have a permanent job, 
but rather each day they made themselves available for and were looking for any type of work they could find. You don't see this too often in America today, uh, but this would have been a very common practice in the days of Jesus, and this is actually a practice that is still uh, in place in various places around the world even today. And so these laborers, they would have most likely been unskilled at any specific trade, and so they had no choice but to bounce around from job to job to job, finding work however they could. And because this is how they found work, they uh, would have more likely been living on the edge of poverty, and they would have been utterly dependent on that, whoever hired them to actually pay them that day so they had the means to feed their family. And one of the reasons we know that is because there's actually some laws in the Old Testament that you can find where as God was kind of arranging and organizing his people and how to function as a society, there are actually specific laws in place that say if you are an owner and you hire a day laborer, you have to pay them that day because they are depending on it. So these are the types of workers he would have found. And so the landowner goes out probably to a common marketplace He finds a group of guys, and he agrees to pay them a denarius. Now, a denarius would have been a a typical day's wage, and it probably would would have been a pretty good one considering they were unskilled workers. So he hires these men. He sends them into his vineyard, and we're told that they get to work. So the story continues. Verse 3. Now, about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and again about three in the afternoon. And he did the same thing. So as the day progresses, we find that the the owner repeatedly goes back out to the marketplace throughout the day at various intervals. So he started at six. He goes back out at nine. He goes back out at noon. And he goes back out about three o'clock. And each time he goes out, he finds more people looking for work. And he decides, decides to hire them as well. Now, with the first set of workers, there was a very clear amount of money he, they agreed to. They agreed to a denarius, again, a typical day's wage. But in all of these later hires, there are no contract discussions, right? In these cases, the landowner simply says, I will pay you whatever is right. Now, I understand that these men are probably desperate for work, right? They didn't get hired at the start of the day, so as the hours are starting to tick away, right, like they're getting a little bit more desperate, and so they're probably going to take whatever kind of work they can get. But in general, if someone ever hires you for a job, it's probably a good idea to find out and to nail down your rate of pay before you start the job, right? Because your idea of what a fair pay rate is might be different than what your boss's idea of a fair fair pay rate is. And so, uh, but they didn't really have a lot of choice, and so they agree, and they go to work in the vineyard. And the reality was, uh, not all the landowners in that day were good. In the same way, not all owners today are good. Uh, There were a lot of landowners who were not, and many of them, they would cheat, and they would take advantage of these day laborers, basically because they could, because they were the ones in the position of power, and these day laborers, they were not. They had very little means and very little ability to do anything about it if someone were to cheat them or to try and take advantage of them in any way. So the story continues, verse six. It says about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And so we're told that the owner goes back out one last time, this time around 5 p.m. with only one hour left in the workday, and he finds people still standing there, and he decides to hire them too. 
Now, most commentators will tell you the reason this last group of workers were still standing there is most likely because they were the least desirable of all of the workers, right? Perhaps they were elderly. Maybe they were disabled. Maybe they were sick. Perhaps they were someone who was being racially discriminated against. And so for whatever reason, this last group of workers, they're like the kid who gets picked last at dodgeball, right? Like nobody wants them. Everyone who's come to look for workers, they chose the ones that they wanted. They thought, oh, you're going to be productive for me, and you will too. These are the ones who are kind of the leftovers. They're the ones who are last. And we're told that once again, the owner finds them, and with no discussion about pay, he sends them into his vineyard to work. So I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to ask you the question. In your own mind, what in your mind would you consider a fair rate of pay to be? Right For all these workers who came throughout the day at various points, what would be a fair thing to pay them? So I can tell you how my brain would answer the question. So I, kinda, I have an engineering background, and so in my mind, a fair rate of pay would simply be a prorated version of whatever the first workers agreed to. And because I have an engineering brain, I did what all engineers do, and I made a spreadsheet so I can show you this, right? And so uh, the first hour workers... They started at 6 a.m. They worked till 6 p.m. So they worked a full 12-hour day. 12-hour workday would have been normal. Um, for the sake of today's discussion, we're going to assume the denarius is $120. I don't think that's actually true, but to make the math simple for us, we're going to say they get a denarius, which is $120, which means they averaged an hourly rate of $10 an hour. So in my mind, if this is what the first owner, the owner agreed to with the first workers, and if this is a fair rate of pay, then what everyone else should get should be a prorated version of that. And so the third hour workers, they didn't start till nine. So they work nine hours. If you pay them the same, they're going to get $90. Next set of workers, they come at six. They work from noon until six. They work six hours. They should get $60. You guys see how this is going. Ninth hour workers... They only work three hours, they get $30. And then finally, the 11th hour workers, they only work the last hour of the day, but they should get at least $10, right? In my mind, if what the first worker agreed to is fair, what is a fair amount of money to pay all of the other workers? Well, it would be this. It would be a prorated version. And anything less than this, in my mind, the landowner is now probably taking advantage of them, right? He's not being fair to them. So let's keep reading, and let's see if this is a fair owner or not. So verse 8, when evening came, the owners of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So the men who were hired last The men who only worked one hour get brought in first, and get this, the owner decides to pay them a full denarius, right? They get the full $120 for only one hour of work, and that, my friends, is a phenomenal deal, right? This is the kind of boss you want. This is 12 times what they would have been expecting to receive. So these workers, they are on cloud nine. They are excited. They probably ran home to tell their spouse what just happened, right? So I imagine this like, it's almost like, wife, you'll never believe what just happened to me. I was standing there and they're like drafting all the workers and nobody picks me and I'm the awkward guy. I'm standing there. I'm the last one and the days, the hours are just 
Like they're just kind of falling away and I'm still standing here and I'm starting to freak out. How are we gonna pay our family? I don't know what we're gonna do. How are we gonna feed tonight? Like, what are we gonna do? And then this landowner showed up and there was only an hour left, but he looked at me and he said, I still want you to come to work for me. And so he hired me and I, did, I just took it. I didn't even agree to anything and you'll never believe what happened. He gave me the full amount. He paid me for a full day and we can eat tonight, right? And so these Last hour workers, they are on cloud nine. They are excited about what just happened. And if you're one of the workers who was hired first, we're told that they're there and they witness all of this, you're probably actually starting to get excited too, right? Because you just witnessed the generosity of this owner. You're like, wow, this is a pretty generous guy, right? And, and if these guys got hired last, if they got $120 for one hour and we work 12 hours, this might work out pretty good for us, right? 12 times 120 carried the, this is gonna be a sweet payday for us, right? And so they're starting to get excited too because they've seen this generosity. So here's what happens next, verse 10. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And so just as we expected, those who were hired last, they saw the generosity of the owner, then they got excited because they expected to receive more. But we're told that when it came time for their pay, they also received a denarius, They got paid the same as the workers who only worked one hour. And we're told told that the ones who were hired first, that they immediately begin to grumble, that there's something inside of them, the sense of injustice immediately wells up, and it just makes them want to shout out, but that's not fair. It's not fair. You cannot make us equal to them because we have worked way harder than they did. And not only did we work 12 times as much as them, we worked our hours during the heat of the day and they worked their one measly hour during the cool of the day. And so they start to protest to the owner, that's not fair. And let's be honest, I think most of us are right there with them, right? If you found out tomorrow that someone who worked only part-time at your job, right, someone who did the exact same job as you, And even though they only worked one day a week, if you found out that although you work five days a week and they work one day a week doing the exact same thing, that they have the same annual salary as you, how would you feel about this, right? You would be upset too. You would probably talk to your supervisor or you would reach out to HR. You might call the union rep and your complaint to them would be the exact same as those who were hired first. You would say, but that's not fair, It's not fair. Now, in the days of Jesus, there was no workers' union to defend you, and there is no HR number you can call. And so we are told that these day laborers, they do the only thing they can do, and they start to grumble directly to the owner himself. And so here's the owner's response to their grumbling, verse 13. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right 
to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And just like that, the parable ends. And the conclusion of the parable is that everyone, regardless of whether you worked one hour or you worked 12 hours, everybody gets a denarius because the owner is free to do whatever he wants. Now, the reason that I think this parable sits so uncomfortably with most of us is because we live in a world and we live in a society that operates with uh, what I'm going to call the earn it mentality. The earn it mentality. A world in which people should get what they deserve, in which nothing is free, a world in which we must earn the things that we want to receive. And so if you were a senior in high school and you want to get a college scholarship, you know, we all know that they don't just give those to anybody, right? Who do they give them to? They give them to those with the best grades, to those with the best test scores. They give those to the students who have worked really hard for the past four years of high school. And if you want to get a promotion at work, if you're hoping to get one, you know that you have to be a top performer, right? You know that unless you are the boss's nephew, if you want to get promoted, you have to perform at a really high level. And more than that, you have to perform at a higher level and better than all of your peers around you. If you are a business owner and you want me to buy your product, let's say you are a a cell phone service provider and you want my business, right? Well, what do you have to do? You're going to have to earn my business. You're going to have to prove to me that you have better service at a cheaper price. And you can do that. I might be interested. And if you can't, leave me alone. I'm not interested in what you're selling. By and large, we live in a society where we are constantly told to earn it, to prove it, and to show yourself worthy. And anytime someone with this paradigm, which all of us have on some level, is confronted with this parable... It messes with us. We don't like it. It bothers us. Because when you view this parable through that lens, it will never seem fair to you. Now, this earned mentality was also something that was quite common to find in the days of Jesus. And in fact, to truly understand this parable and to understand why Jesus told it, you have to understand the context of what happened immediately before the parable. Because in the story right before this, we are told that a rich young ruler, someone who was probably used to buying anything he ever wanted, that this rich young ruler approaches Jesus with a simple and yet loaded question. Here's what he says. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Right? The rich young ruler, just like most people, he approaches Jesus with this earn it mentality. And he wants to know what it takes, what he must do to gain entrance into heaven. Even goes as far as telling Jesus that he has kept every command. In the middle, he says, all of these I've kept. Look at all I've done, Jesus. Look at my resume. Look how hard I've been working. And then after some back and forth, Jesus, if you know the story, Jesus tests him by telling him to go and sell everything he has and give it to the poor. And we're told that the young man walks away sad because he had great wealth. And so part of the backdrop of our parable is this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And then immediately after this, in response to this young man's unwillingness to give up his wealth, 
In response to that, Peter then looks at Jesus, and here's what Peter says to him. Peter answers him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Right, so Peter now throws his resume and the disciples' resume into the mix, and he says, well, this guy couldn't do it. This guy didn't have what it takes to walk away from everything, but we can. We walked away from everything to follow you, Jesus, so what are we going to get? What did we earn for our sacrifice? And so in response to Peter's question, Jesus does two things. The first thing he does is he answers him directly. So in verse 29... He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. The first thing that Jesus does is he affirms their sacrifice. He says, yes, Peter, I understand what you walked away from. I acknowledge your sacrifice. You will absolutely be rewarded for that. But the second thing he does is he cautions them. He says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The second thing he does is he says, but be careful not to think about this through the world's paradigm. And then immediately following this statement, Jesus launches into the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning And I don't know if you remember this, but the parable that we just looked at, it actually ends with this same phrase, but the first two are last, and the last will be first, right? That's how the parable ends. And so Jesus actually bookends the parable with these two phrases about the first will be last, and the last will be first. And so the context of this parable is that Jesus is responding to the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he is speaking directly to disciples, to the disciples who are leaning into that event that they just witnessed, right? They just witnessed this interaction between Jesus and that young ruler. And the complaint at the end of the parable is simple. It's why do they get the same thing I get? Why did they get the same payment as me? Because my resume is better. If they get a denarius, then I deserve more because I have worked harder, because I, I have earned it. And so what is Jesus doing? He is confronting this earn it mentality, a very common way of thinking about religion in his day in which most people approach God the same way they approached everything else. There were a whole lot of people for a variety of reasons that thought that they deserved entrance into heaven more than the next guy. And so they might think things like this. They thought, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but, but I'm better than that guy. And I'm better than that guy. And I'm, I'm definitely better than that guy, right? In Jesus' day, it might have sounded like this. It may have sounded like, I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. Just like the workers who were hired first, my people and my lineage and my family, we have been following God from the start, since the times of Abraham and Moses. And in their minds, that meant that God somehow owed them something. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts showing grace to people and forgiving people, and offering salvation to people who had not been attempting to follow Jesus in their past, the religious people screamed, it's not fair. It's not fair. My resume is more extensive. It's more thorough. It's longer. I have more experience. You can't make us equal. And the disciples, they are not above this either. 
they too are approaching Jesus with the wrong paradigm. They're just thinking about this. They're going about this all in the wrong way. And Jesus' response is to say, that might be how your world works, but it ain't how my world works. He says, in my kingdom, we don't use that currency, and we don't operate under those values. And so as we start to consider what in the world does this parable mean for us, I think there are a couple things we need to consider, and there are a couple things I want to challenge you. I think this parable actually challenges us to do. So here's the first one. I think we must ditch the earn it mentality, or we just got to get rid of that. Now, hear me out for a moment. If you work in HR, I'm not talking about that, right? You should still treat people, and you should still pay people fairly. But when it comes to how you and I, how we interact with God, we need to untrain ourselves from thinking the same way we think about everything else. And in order to do this, we need to start with a basic understanding of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And so at the core of that message is the idea that people are saved not because of the things that they have done, but because of what God, what Jesus has already done for them on the cross. It's not that they're better people or because they have a better or a more, more thorough spiritual resume. It is purely by God's grace and his mercy that we are saved. There's a whole lot of places in scripture where we see this. Let me, guys, just, let me just show you guys just a couple of them. Uh, so here's, here's one in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See the same thing again in Titus chapter 3. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, I understand that this idea of grace uh, will be a very hard concept for some of you to accept. For some of you, this will require a massive paradigm shift from your current way of thinking, and it will go against the grain of everything that you have ever been taught or raised to believe. And the reason this is so hard for many of us is because this idea of grace is one of the things that is very unique to Christianity. In fact, this goes against whatever every other major religion will teach you about God and eternal life. Even those of you who grew up with a Catholic background probably grew up being told you must do this and you must confess that and you must pray a certain thing a certain number of times. Every other major religion will tell you that you must prove your worth to God and that you must earn your way in. But the message of Jesus says differently. He says it is only by his grace and his mercy that we can find forgiveness for our sins and entrance into eternal life with him. Now, for those of you in the room who are already believers, for those of you who have already accepted this message, the temptation might be to think to yourself, yeah, 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 I got this, right? Yep, we are saved by grace. I was taught that as a child. This is probably a good reminder for me. But good news, I've already learned this lesson. And if that's you, I simply want to challenge you that even if you have known the gospel for a while now, that this earn it mentality can run far deeper than you think, that it is super hard to get rid of, 
and that it can absolutely affect far more than just your initial decision to follow him. And so I actually want to kind of pause and press in here for a moment to show you that this earn it mentality is still something that all of us struggle with. And the way that I want to do that is by sharing two resumes with you. The story of two people who took very drastically different approaches to their life. So the first one is a lady by the name of Agnes. Some of you have probably heard of her before. Here is Agnes's story. Agnes was an Albanian Roman Catholic nun who founded the Missionaries of Charity in India in 1950. For over 45 years, she ministered to the poor, sick, orphaned, and dying while guiding the Missionaries of Charity's expansion, first throughout India and then in other countries. By the 1970s, she was internationally famed as a humanitarian and an advocate for the poor and helpless. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979 and India's highest civilian honor in 1980 for her humanitarian work. More commonly known as Mother Teresa, her missionaries of charity continued to expand, and at the time of her death, Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity had over 4,000 sisters, an associated brotherhood of 300 members, and over 100,000 lay volunteers, operating 610 missions in 123 countries, including hospices and homes for people with HIV-AIDS, leprosy and tuberculosis, soup kitchens, children's and family counseling programs, orphanages, and schools. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's a pretty darn good resume, right? Doesn't get a whole lot better than that. It's about as good as it gets. So now I want to share with you resume number two, which is going to fall on the very opposite end of the spectrum. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer grew up in Bath, Ohio, where he attended Revere High School, literally right down the road. I had some people after the Saturday night service say, I went to high school with him. In the summer of 1988, Dahmer's grandmother asked him to move out because of his late nights, his strange behavior, and the foul smells from the basement. One day after moving into his apartment, he was arrested for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy in Milwaukee. He was sentenced to five years probation and one year in a work release camp. Dahmer was paroled from the work release camp two months early, and and he soon moved into a new apartment. Shortly thereafter, he began a string of gruesome murders that ended in his arrest involving rape, torture, dismemberment, necrophilia, and cannibalism. Jeffrey Dahmer was officially indicted on 17 murder charges, which were reduced to 15. His trial began on January 30th, 1992. With evidence overwhelmingly against him, Dahmer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The trial lasted two weeks. The court found Dahmer sane and guilty on 15 counts of murder and sentenced him to 15 life terms, totaling 957 years in prison. Dahmer served his time at the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin, where he ultimately declared himself a born-again Christian. This conversion occurred after viewing evangelical material sent to him by his father. A local preacher from the Churches of Christ, Roy Ratcliffe, met with Dahmer and agreed to baptize him. Shortly thereafter, another inmate killed Dahmer in prison. So two resumes. One represents a worker who in our mind was hired first and who deserves it. The other represents a worker who in our mind was hired last and who clearly doesn't deserve it. Now, I don't know if Dahmer's conversion was real or not, but let's assume for the moment that it was. Question for you. 
Who deserves heaven more? Which of these two individuals deserves heaven more? Is it Mother Teresa? Or is it Jeffrey Dahmer? Because the thing inside of most of us that wants to scream Mother Teresa is our own inner battle with the the earn it mentality. It is evidence that the earn it mentality that it is still in there. Because the answer the Bible gives to this question is neither. It's neither of them deserve it. Because there is nothing that you can do to earn eternal life. And that earn it mentality, which still resides in all of us, it can and it will still affect your spiritual life. So for example, one of the ways it can affect you now is that it can easily lead to bitterness towards God when life doesn't go the way that you want, right? If you don't get the job, if God doesn't heal the sickness, if he doesn't answer the prayer the way that you want, it can very, very easily lead towards bitterness because you feel like God owes you, right? You're like, oh, I've been doing better, God. I, I stopped swearing and I, I've been doing better at this and I've been coming to church recently and then why, why would you let this happen to me? Right, I, I don't deserve this. It can also lead to frustration towards God when it does go well for somebody else. Why did they get the promotion instead of me? How come they can have kids and I can't? Why do they get to be married while I am still single? All of these thoughts are shaped in part by this earn it mentality. This idea that God owes us something. I also think this kind of thinking can affect how we view and we treat the people around us. So maybe there's someone in your life who you have given up on. Maybe you know the things that they've done and you think to yourself, it's too late for them. There is no hope for someone with that kind of resume. Maybe there's someone in your life who has hurt you or wronged you and you think to yourself, man, they, they don't deserve God's grace. There is no way I'm talking to that person about Jesus. Do you, do you know what they did to me? When we live with an earn it mentality, it leads to things like bitterness and jealousy and resentment, and it can destroy the good things in our life, like joy and gratitude and generosity. So the first thing that I think this parable challenges us to do, that we need to do, is we need to ditch the earn it mentality. When it comes to how you and I relate to God, we need to, whenever we find this, we need to try and just Rip that out of that relationship. And then step number two that I think we need to do is this. It's it's that we must accept that we are the 11th hour worker. We must accept that we are the 11th hour worker. So by a quick show of hands, when I was uh, just working our way through the parable earlier, how many of you felt like the owner was being unfair? Just be honest. Raise your hand if you felt like the owner was being unfair. Okay, you're like kind of going like this. The vast majority went like this, like you're afraid to admit it, right? So uh, I am right there with you. Every time I read it, I'm like, oh, this is unfair. I actually read this story. My daughter was being uh, a 10-year-old and just like arguing over stupid little things. I was like, I have a parable for you that I'm teaching on. So I read her this parable and like halfway through, she's like, oh, it's so unfair, dad. This is not fair, right? So, um, but here's what that tells me. If the parable seems unfair to you, if you struggle with it, and I'm saying I am in that category, it's because you identify yourself with the full day worker, right? For most of us, injustice is what, is, is what we call something that happens to our disadvantage. 
while what happens to our advantage, we just can tend to consider that good luck. Like something goes against us, that's so unfair, that's so unjust. And then when it goes in your favor, like, wow, that's so lucky. Thanks, God. What a great day, right? Like when it's in our favor, it's luck. When it's not, it's injustice. And so the reason that we find this parable unfair is because we tend to identify ourselves with the full day worker. And the beauty of this parable is that almost everyone who reads it reads it through the lens of the full day worker. But here's the deal. You're not the full day worker in the parable. You're the 11th hour worker in the parable. And I already know what some of you are thinking. No, no, I'm not, Kevin. I grew up in the church. I have believed for as long as I can remember. We come every week. We are in life group. We give 10% of our income. I got poison ivy serving at Love Medina last year. There is no way that I am the 11th hour worker. And do you know what you're doing right now? You are mentally running through your resume. Right? You are approaching this parable with the earned mentality. And while the parable does kind of present a spectrum of people to set the stage, the conclusion of the parable really only gives us two options. It says you're either the full day worker or you're the 11th hour worker. And so I want you guys to consider this with me for a moment. Who, who is the only full day worker in human history? Who is the only one who has done all of the work that God has asked of him? Who is the only one who has lived up to and fulfilled his contract with God? Who is the only one who has borne the full burden of the work in the heat of the day? It's not us. Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only true full day worker. And for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, what do we get? We get what Jesus earned. We get the full reward. And we get to be the beneficiaries of his work. He is the one who lived the perfect life. He is the one who went to the cross also that we, the 11th hour workers, could live. And so if anyone has the right to scream unfair, it's not us, it's Jesus. But if there was ever anyone in human history who had the right to look at God and say, that's not fair, it was Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what the Bible tells us he did was he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You see, when you rightly view this parable from the perspective of the 11th hour worker, let me tell you what should happen. Your sense of injustice, it should start to fade. And this overwhelming sense of generosity and just gratitude should start to well up inside of you because you realize that you are on the receiving end of God's immense generosity to you. And if Jesus really is the full day worker, then it begs the question, why did the, why did the owner keep going back out? Right? Did the owner actually need more workers? Did he like miscalculate how much work there was gonna be? I don't think so. I think it was because he was being generous. You see, the owner didn't actually need more workers, but rather the owner knew that they, he knew they needed the work. And why does he give the 11th hour worker a full day's pay? Is it because they earned it? Nope. Again, it's because he's generous. 
It's because he knew that his day laborers, they were utterly dependent on a full day's pay to survive, right? He knew that pay for one hour, that wasn't going to cut it. He knew that wouldn't feed their family. The owner doesn't give them what they deserve. Rather, he gives them what he knows they need. And that is exactly what God does for us. This entire parable from start to finish is all about us laying down our sense of entitlement and, it is, and embracing the extreme generosity of the owner. So I'm going to invite the band back up. And while they're closing, let me just, while they're coming, let me just close with a couple thoughts. So for those of you in the room who you are followers of Jesus, in just a moment, uh, the band's going to lead us out in three songs. And while they are doing that, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you and challenge you to take advantage of that time. So anytime you are confronted with or reminded of the immense generosity that you are been on the receiving end of, that you have received from God, something inside of you should well up that wants to scream out and shout out and just thank God with everything inside of you for who he is and what he has done. And so in the moments to come as we worship, do that. Thank God for his generosity in your life. If you're here today and you're still investigating Jesus, man, we're so grateful that you would come here, that you would allow us to be part of your journey and to even even speak into this journey as you are seeking after God. Maybe for you, as you read through the parable, you actually identified most with the workers who were chosen last. Perhaps you feel like you're still standing out there. Perhaps you feel like your resume is not good enough or that you're too messed up for God to ever uh, choose someone like you. And let me just tell you, that is absolutely not the case. That the God of the Bible is good and forgiving and he is far more generous than you can ever imagine. And so if that's you, I just wanna challenge you in the next few moments, uh, would, you just, would you take a moment and would you just talk to him? Would you just talk to God? Whatever it is you're thinking through, whatever it is is on your heart, would you, would you just have a conversation with God? And maybe, if you feel like you're ready, would you consider asking God to forgive you and to allow his incredible generosity to be something that is part of your life? And then finally, I think one of the questions that this parable raises is, okay, if it's all about grace, if I can't earn anything, if I am going to receive the same thing as those who work harder than me and who work longer than me, then I gotta be honest, I'm kind of asking the question, then what's the point of all this? Like, if Jesus is gonna do all the work and I don't have to, then, then why am I working? Why do anything? If that's you, let me just encourage you. You have to come back next week for our next parable in the series. So let me pray for us. God, you are good. And we are incredibly grateful that we get to be on the receiving end of some ridiculously lavish and extravagant generosity. Um, God, forgive us for uh, ever even wanting to approach you with an earned mentality. God, thank you for the ways that you have uh, shown up in our life and you have showed us grace in the moments when we do not deserve it. Thank you so much for your work that you put in so that we could live. God, I pray that you would help us search out ourselves and, and really just see honestly uh, and the ways in which maybe we still approach you with this mentality. God, would you help us rid that from our lives? Would you help us just fall on our knees and embrace the generosity that you so freely give us? And God, would you help us see the world around us and the people around us through the same way and the same lens that you do? God, please give us grace and mercy in the moments when we struggle with this. God, I know that you will. 
Father, we love you and we thank you. And we want to turn our hearts and praise you now. It's in your son's name. Amen.